Good morning, friends. Good morning. Yes, sorry we have to postpone and cancel things, but it's just the world we live in these days. And uh, the purpose of that party in the first place that we were going to have this summer party next Saturday was because there's so many new faces around here and we want you guys, we want to be able to be family and get together, get to know one another. So that just means you got to do that on Sunday mornings. So I'm just going to encourage you pastorally, lovingly. I know it's easy to just want to see the people that you know and reconnect and do all the things. Let me encourage you. Just, could you just try to meet one person you don't know and chat with them for 30 seconds on a Sunday morning? That's crazy, I know. But you're going to bless that person. And like Shelley said, every person has a story. And you're going to be surprised if you actually say, how are you? What's your story? So... Just let's, let's get to know one another on Sunday mornings. Let me pray real quick to center myself and get ourselves into this prologue of John's. Jesus, I'm excited to get to talk about you. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm excited to, to just open my heart and my soul, my spirit, my mind, my person to you and your life, Jesus. I feel like this privilege that I get of preaching your word is a re weekly recalibration for me, just myself. Reminding me of my humanity. Reminding me of my brokenness. Reminding me of my forgetfulness and reminding me of your grace. Your grace and your love for me. Reminding me that you are the one who, like the writer of Hebrews says, sustains all things by the power of your word. Reminding me, like Paul said in Colossians, that you're the image of the invisible God. That God was delighted and content to have all God's fullness dwell in you, Jesus. So as I say these things, we just as a, as a spiritual family now humble ourselves to say all the fullness of God does not dwell in me does not dwell in anyone sitting here. It does not dwell in this church. It dwells in you, Jesus. So would you come and teach us your ways? In Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. God said, let there be light and there was light. Light and God saw that the light was good and he separated the light 
from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you hear the drama in those words, friends? Do you hear the, do you, do you see those words happening, this void and formless earth with darkness submerged in darkness and God speaks and there's light. And then John says, just so you know, that word of God that spoke and light came, it has a name. That word of God, is na its name is Jesus. And it's not just the word of God that speaks, it's that very light that brings light to this dark, formless, dysfunctional, chaotic earth. That light is Jesus himself. We're in our second week of thinking about John's prologue. Probably the greatest theological piece of work, piece of writing that the world has ever known, the 18 verses that scholars call John's prologue. We're just going to slowly march our way through. We're going to be in it next week again. started this book, this study on the book of John last week, and what I would have normally done on an introductory sermon is tell you a little bit about the background of the book, who wrote it, when it was written, who it was for, all that business. We had a ton of stuff going on last week, so I didn't do it, and I was still running over time. So let me just give you a little introductory, a little taster of the context of the book, the gospel of John. Now, the first thing that we need to ask the first thing that scholars ask is, who wrote this book that we're reading? Now, I'll bet most of you are looking at me thinking, this is a slam dunk. Obviously, the disciple, the apostle John, the son of Zebedee, wrote this book. It's clear that it's, who else would it be? Well, unfortunately... The name John was one of the most, if not the most common name in ancient Palestinian Judaism. There were tons of Johns in the world at this point, and there were tons of Johns in Jesus' world. So tradition says that it was John the son of Zebedee, but most scholars these days are coming to the conclusion it probably wasn't John the son of Zebedee who wrote the Gospel of John. It might have been, some scholars still hold to that. But there's a couple of, couple of possibilities that are really likely that most scholars hold to. And when, when you're not a biblical scholar like me, raise your hand if you're a biblical scholar. 
we're going to have to talk afterwards, Zach. But we had one guy raise his hand. Everyone else, when you're not a biblical scholar, the best thing to do is to, to go where the consensus is in the, in the tribes that you kind of roll in and stream in, but there's consensus. And the, there's two major kind of thought, thoughts about who wrote the book of John. The first is that it was John the Elder, which is this John within tradition. Some scholars think that it was John the Apostle, the Apostle John or the disciple, the son of Zebedee John, was John the Elder. Others think that John the Elder in Ephesus was not John the, the son of Zebedee, but that this guy, old guy who wrote the book in about the mid-90s to his church, this Johanna community in, in the city of Ephesus, this is who wrote the Gospel of John. There's many others who think it was not John the Elder, but rather a John who was a disciple of Jesus, just not one of the 12. This is kind of where I land. This is Richard Bauckham and a number of other really, really good New Testament scholars believe this, that the, the book of John, the beloved disciple, some th actually think that it was written by Lazarus. That's kind of a wild proposition, that Lazarus wrote the book because it kind of has this point of view from where Lazarus comes from and that he calls himself the, the beloved disciple and maybe ad adopted the name John because it was just a common name. But there's Richard Bauckham and other scholars land here and I think this is probably the best, most credible point of view that the, the guy who wrote the, uh, the gospel of John is a person who was a disciple of Jesus, just not one of the 12 disciples. Jesus had many other disciples than the, just the 12. And this was a disciple of Jesus not one of the 12, who lived in Jerusalem. And the reason that this is a really good, I think, point of view or perspective is because John, the Gospel of John is so different than the synoptic Gospels. And by synoptics, I just mean Matthew, Mark, Luke. The synoptic, the word basically in Greek means seen together. They're seen together. These Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very, very similar. They're obviously written by a, a couple of people, several people, who, had the very, who saw the same things happening. There's some inconsistencies in them, just like it would be if we were to, if, you, if, if about 15 of us were to hang out for three years, walk around the Midwest, and, and, and try to like be the church, and you wrote about it, we'd have very similar perspectives, but there would be inconsistencies probably, right? It's no big deal. We don't have to freak out because there's inconsistencies in the Gospels. But John is very different than the Synoptic Gospels. John is very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it seems like you don't get as much Galilee in the Gospel of John. We were just in the book of Matthew studying through the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. There's tons of Galilee. It's a Galilean story in the, book, in the Synoptic Gospels. They're wandering the Galilean countryside. And when they get to Jerusalem is at the end of all three of those Gospels. The book of John has a very Jerusalem-centric story. A lot of it is in Jerusalem. So Richard Bauckham, among other notable scholars, think that John, this guy John, was a, a, a disciple or a follower of Jesus who lived in Jerusalem, who probably used his house to give, give away his house for Jesus and the disciples to use in the Last Supper. And he was also probably the one at Jesus, the foot of Jesus' cross when Jesus gave Mary, his mother, over to, the, to this John to live in Jerusalem with him. I just said a lot of words. Raise your hand if you're still with me. Okay. Here's the biggest point. Nobody knows. 
Nobody knows. It's our job to do, the, to do the work and to dig in and to try to figure it out, in particular because John is so different than the three other Gospels, but we still don't know. But it's going to help understand some of the things of why it's out of order and why, why the book of John seems to be different than the other three Gospels. There's reasons for that. Scholarship is unanimous, virtually unanimous in thinking that the Gospel of John was the last Gospel written, probably in the mid-90s. And it was written to a community of newly, newly new Christians, mostly formerly Jewish people. So they would actually identify as Jewish people who see Jesus as Messiah. And most of these most of the people in this church were probably kicked out of their, of their families, out of their circles, out of their social networks, out of their, their cultural affiliations because they followed Jesus as Messiah. There's a number of people who think John is a little anti-Semitic actually because there's this, there's this reflexive kind of feeling about the, the, the Jewish people in particular, I don't see that as much because I just think religious people have a hard time understanding Jesus. Whether it's the ancient Jewish people or it's Catholics or evangelicals today, I think religious people, people who have been brought up in religion, people who have been taught the ways and the rules and the regulations and have all the check marks and who are living really good lives, those are the people who have the hardest time recognizing Jesus when he's standing right before them. So this is who the book of the Gospel of John was written to. I think it's who it was written by, a, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus who lived in Jerusalem, who, who was dedicated to Jesus, who had this different viewpoint. And thank God we get this different viewpoint because there's some fun nuances that we're going to run into in the Gospel of John. The, the Gospel of John is more conversational and relational. We get to see the person of Jesus, not just the healer, not just the teacher, but the guy who talks to people on the side of the road and explodes their world. So let me read this for you again, John's prologue. We're going to get into this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, let's do a little thought, thought journey here. Use our imaginations. Now, imagine that I have a guest speaker come. And I'm talking up this person, and it starts to get a little uncomfortable because I'm so effusive in my praise. And I say, actually, you guys, I want to tell you that this, this guy right here, he's the Word of God. He, he actually encompasses so much of the scriptures that I've read that you and I have read. He embodies the scriptures in this perfect way and actually He's above the scriptures. He, this person has authority that even the scriptures don't have in them, so listen up. If I were to say that, what would you do? 
Go ahead, tell me. Be suspicious. I think there's one right answer to that. I would walk out these doors immediately. Because that's blasphemous. That's heretical to call a human being the Word of God. Does anybody else agree with me? See, this is the scandalous nature of what John was doing here. As we saw last week, John was in trying to, to, to frame in our imaginations who this Jesus is before he gets into these stories, before he gets into these conversations in the relational Jesus, before he tells about who Jesus was and what Jesus did, he said, you have to understand who Jesus was. And here's the reality is your Jesus is too small. See, Jesus was, he was, he was thinking, we, we Jews like to think of the Torah, the scriptures as the word of God. Jesus, the Torah is not the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. The scriptures are not the word of God, friends. John is saying, Jesus, the person of Jesus is the word of God. John is hearkening to this Jewish concept of the wisdom of God as he's talking about the word of God. The wisdom of God that's personified in the book of Proverbs, in the wisdom writings in ancient Judaism. Wisdom is this personified feminine person who exists with God before the creation of the world and is this creative agent that helps God in creating the world. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this shouldn't be news to you. And John is saying Jesus is like that, only greater. See, because wisdom was created in Proverbs 8, it says. But Jesus was in the beginning with God, and as a matter of fact, he was God. He's borrowing from these Greek ideas of the God, this divine life, this logos, this divine life that is the ground of all being, that all life flows out of. This is a common thought in philosophical. John's philosophical world. He's trying to take all these metaphors for how we know God, and he's saying all of them are encompassed and surpassed in Jesus. So right now, I'm feeling this check that I don't, there, I don't have enough Jesus in my world. I don't fill my imagination with enough Jesus. I don't, I don't think about and pray to and talk to and involve Jesus in my world enough because, see, John seems to think that Jesus is, is, is the creative agent, the creative force in the world that holds all things together in the power of his existence, in his very existence, that Jesus, it says, let's keep on going what John says about him, in him was life. In that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is trying to speak metaphorically, and these metaphors of life and light are very common in the Gospel of John. Matter of fact, life, this idea of life or eternal life, John, John speaks to it about 38 times in the Gospel of John. In this dualism of light and darkness, John speaks to about 28 or 30 times in his gospel. There's, John's trying to get across the fact that if you want life, you look to Jesus. If you want light in your world, if you want your world to be enlightened and, and to step out of darkness into light, Jesus is your person. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus is the light that gives light to all mankind. This is really complex, but do you know what all mankind means in the Greek? It means all mankind. Jesus is the light, the life, and in this, his life is light, and that light gives light to all mankind. Let's keep going. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, some scholars think that this little bit about John, it's kind of a weird insertion in here. And some scholars think that there, were, there was a group of Christians and followers of, of Jesus who were actually thinking that maybe John is on the same level playing field as Jesus. And John's being this, bringing this quick little corrective. Just so you know, don't you dare think that any human being, any man who walked this earth is equal with Jesus, including John. He came to te- to, for Jesus but to testify to Jesus, not as the Messiah himself. But then he keeps going about Jesus. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, there's all sorts of metaphors in this prologue of John. And I wa- the reason that I wanted to stop and have a time out, I was thinking about doing the whole rest of the prologue this morning, and then I quickly realized there's just too much here. I don't want these metaphors to get lost on us and kind of get jumbled together because that's what always happens. I want to camp out here on this idea of Jesus is the true light that gives light to all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus shines in the light shines the light in, his, in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, this sounds very, dare I say, universal. It sounds very, uh, like, Jesus, Jesus arrives, the advent of Christ arrives, Jesus arrives, and it's just inevitable. The light has come, and it's overwhelmed the darkness, and all of us just kind of get sucked into this beautiful vortex of light, which I think inevitably is going to happen eventually. But see, there's this, if that's the case, if it's just, if it's just that Jesus has come, the word of God is here, the light shines in our darkness, and we all just say amen and hallelujah, and the rest is all gravy, if that's the case, I need to find a new job. If that's the case, why are, we don't have to put a bunch of effort into proclaiming this gospel because it's just inevitable, right? The light, it shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it, so let's go party. Let's go watch an air show. Let's focus on training camp and freak out about David Bakhtiari being on the pup list. Some of you don't know at all what the pup list means. And I'm not going to go there. Christ's light shines in our darkness. See, but here's, here's why we do this. Here's why we keep going. Verse 10, he was in the world, 
And though the world was made through him, this word of God, Jesus, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Most scholars think John is talking about the Jewish people here. The Jewish people in the Hebrew scriptures are seen as the people of God, God's own people. And Jesus, yet the God incarnate comes to his own people and his own do not recognize him. See, this is, to me, this is not anti-Semitic again because this is, this is common among religious people. How many religious people do you know who are really religious, really good people, really checking the boxes, doing all the right things, and they're really confident in it, they feel really good in it, and there's so little Jesus in their lives. Do you know there's pastors who have gotten fired because their, their church literally said, you talk about Jesus too much? See, religious people get confronted by Jesus, and it's not always the slam dunk. He came to his own. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born of God. So here we go, friends. John's saying there's two realities here that, we're, that I'm speaking to. You have the light that is Jesus. And then you have your own personal darkness. See, the reason this isn't just inevitable is because there is all sorts of darkness in this world that's calling to us. It's trying to suck us in like this black hole. Did you, black hole that has this irresistible gravitational force that just pulls you in. Does anybody know what that irresistible gravitational force of sin, of brokenness and darkness feels like being sucked in? For some of us, it feels like this vortex of politics. This vortex of politics. And for some of you, your blood pressure is going up right now trying to figure out if I'm going to stay on the right side here. This vortex of politics that sucks us in like a gravitational force and we have, it almost feels like we're powerless against it. And the way to know that if, you're, if you see politics as the light of the world is if right now you're saying, preach it, pastor. There's a lot of people who need to hear this. On the other side, of course. If you feel like those, those, those crooked misguided people on the other side, I hope they're listening. If that's what was in your mind just a couple seconds ago, you've probably been sucked into the gravitational force of politics, seeing that as the light of the world. For others of us, it's thinking that I've got it all figured out. See, many of us, we read this, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which is his own, but his own did not recognize him. But yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We think that's a one-time deal. One-time deal. I received Jesus into my heart. I saw a 
Christian hip-hop artist this week say, my daughter received Jesus into her heart. Everyone freaks out. It's great. Praise the Lord. But I don't believe this is a one-time deal. I don't think this is, I received Jesus and I'm good to go. I think this is a over and over again, stepping out of my own darkness and into the light. For some of us, this, this gravitational force, this pull of the darkness around us looks like addiction. There's some of you sitting here today who are right in the throes of it, where every single day is a choice. Am I going to say yes to the darkness of addiction because it's just easier? It's more familiar. The light comes in my next high. The light turns on in the next drink I have. The, next, the light turns on in the next hookup. For me, this gravitational force, that, that vortex that pulls me in, over and over again, it's anger. It feels like this inevitable force that I'm just about powerless to, and I lose myself in. And I wake up and realize what I've just done, what I've just said, and there's consequences for them. What, what's your personal darkness? For some of us, it's just the daily grind. For some of us, we've just kind of succumbed to this, to seeing, to seeing life as this mundane, boring exercise that I just want to get through. Instead of seeing each moment as a blessing and a gift, we see each moment as just kind of nothing. And there are some of us who are clinically depressed, and I'm not talking about those people. There's literally nothing you can do, and I hope you see a doctor and get on medication and do all the things. But some of us, our darkness is literally just kind of living life on autopilot. See, because the world is full of miracles every single day. Me saying yes to the light of God means am I going to see those miracles around me every single day, every moment? What's your darkness? What's that personal darkness, that thing that feels like it sucks you in without you even thinking about it? It's just got you. See, we all, here's the beautiful thing, friends. We all get a choice in this matter. Am I going to walk in the light of Christ, this light that Jesus came to bring, or am I going to choose my own personal darkness again? Am I going to fool myself and think I'm going to find that light in, in, in other sources? Am I going to give myself to that darkness over and over again? And here's the beautiful thing. It doesn't matter what you chose yesterday. It doesn't matter what you chose the day before. It doesn't matter what you've been choosing the last couple of years. It matters what you're going to choose today. We're going to have a moment in a, in a little bit where you're going to be able to come up and receive the Lord's table, and that might be you saying, yes, I'm going to choose to walk in the light of Christ today. I've got a friend who I've been really excited to, for him to share his story because this person exemplifies this idea of 
I've given myself to my own darkness, and it's killing me and the people around me. But I chose light, and I keep choosing light every single day. So I'm going to ask my friend Russell Kauth. Russell, will you join me up here and grab a seat up here? Let's welcome Russell Kauth. There we go. Russell, how long have you been around Bruce City? About? Uh, it's been almost five years. Almost five years. How did you find us? What was your life situation when you walked in through these doors? Oh. <laughs> I was beat up, broken. First of all, I'm a recovering heroin addict and alcoholic. Um, Tuesday, I just celebrated five years, clean and sober. Tuesday, five years. <laughs> um, the treatment center that I went to was a Bible-based spiritual Salvation Army. You guys probably all have heard of it. Um, after you do like 30 days into the program, you have to find like an outside meeting or outside church or something like that to attend. Um, so... I visited a few churches in the neighborhood, which I'm not going to mention. <laughs> um, and the Salvation Army requires you to have a slip signed by the people to say that you did your meeting or church service or whatever. So early in recovery, it's kind of embarrassing, you know, to walk into a place and, you know, these people are going to know I'm in a treatment center. And... After visiting a few of those places, after they found out, you know, you're in the Salvation Army, you're a recovering addict, alcoholic, it's kind of like I would sit on that side of the church, everybody would get up and move to that side of the church. And it's a very uncomfortable feeling <laughs> mm -hmm. to be singled out like that. Yeah. How did you, can you just tell us the story, Russell, of how you wound up that again at the Salvation Army Adult Rehab Center. How did you, how did that journey with addiction start and how, what did it look like okay. to your young adult life? All right. Um, well, I grew up very poor in a family where drinking was the main function at all the parties, Christmas, stuff like that, you know. So I grew up. Um, I lived with my, my grandma raised me. My mom was only 16 when she had me, so my grandparents raised me till I was about 11. My grandma was a very, very, very Lutheran woman, so I was raised in Sunday school and, you know, the Bible, and so I had, uh, upbringing by her was good. Then I think I was about 11. My grandpa passed away. My grandma turned ill, so I went to live with my mom, and... My mom was an alcoholic for very many years, too, so to me, as a kid, watching all the late, I mean, it must have been an apartment complex for divorced women because there had to be 12, 13 of these ladies every night that would sit outside and cases of beer and stuff like that, you know, but they all looked, to me as a kid, it looked like fun. So me and a few of the neighborhood kids, you know, we every once in a while steal a couple beers out of the thing, go hide around the corner, you know, drink that. And, you know, the, the feeling was just like instant. I liked, you know, I liked it. 
you know, they, they say addiction is hereditary, which I don't totally agree with. I think it's more of a learned, a learned thing, you know. But, uh, so you, you were learning it in your I was learning it teens. at a very, very, very young age. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, it, it started out, you know, just drinking with the neighborhood kids every now and then or whatever, you know. Then I got to high school and was introduced to marijuana, which, you know, that, okay, you know, yeah. I, I actually made, made it through high school, which I missed a lot of it, you know. Um, after high school, you know, I got a job, you know, I got a different job and I started working with a bunch of people and in my early 20s, I was introduced to cocaine. And, and time out for a second. Yeah. If this is triggering for anyone, please don't feel bad about leaving right now if this is too much for you to listen to. <laughs> That's my buddy Tony <laughs> I guess that, yeah. Continue. You, you got introduced to cocaine. I got in introduced to cocaine. You know, that, that usage lasted, oh man, probably a good five, six, seven years. Um, then I had somebody introduce me to crack cocaine, which is worse than cocaine itself. Um, I battled with that for many years. In, the, in, in between all that, though, I was in and out of different treatment centers trying to, you know, figure out what I wanted to do with my life, what was going wrong. I was always blaming other people for my addiction. You know, it's this person's fault. It's that person's fault. Um, then I went to rehab again and managed to stay clean for a couple years after that. And I got injured at a job and they put me on the pain medication. Well, me being an addict, I justified to myself in my mind that it was okay for me to take these pain pills because they're prescribed by a doctor, which I should have known better. So about five months into the, into the injury, you know, the doctor wanted to take away the pain medication. Well, by that time, I was already taking two, three, four times as much as I was supposed to be taking. I was buying pills off the street. And one of, well, I wouldn't call him a friend, but somebody I knew was like, hey, why don't you try heroin? He's like, it's cheaper, you know, it, you can get more, it'll last longer. And me, I'm the t I, I was the type of person that always was looking for the better high. I mean, people, there were people, they would hand me, you know, three or four pills, not knowing what they were. I would just take them and see what would happen, you know. And uh, so I, I was introduced to heroin, you know, and that is one addiction. I mean, I don't wish addiction on anybody, but heroin addiction is one addiction that I would not want to see anybody go through. It's horrible. I mean, yes, okay, starting out, when I first started, I was, you know, spending maybe $40, $50 every three or four days. Well, six, seven years later, I was spending $130, $135 a day just to feel normal so I could get out of bed and function. The days... Pause for a second. Yes. Say that again one more time just so people hear, heard you. What's that? What you were spending per day 
I was spending, towards the end of my addiction, I was spending $130 to $150 a day just to feel, just to normal. feel normal so I could function. It wasn't even getting me high anymore. Yeah, keep going, please. So, you know, I, I, I knew, I, I always knew, I always believed in God. You know, but the times in my recovery before this time, once I left the recovery program, I left God behind too. And I thought, I could do this on my, I can do it, you know, I can handle it. Well, I mean, I've learned the hard way yeah. <laughs> that I can't. This time, I left the treatment center. You know, I found Brew City, which I love to call home. I've met amazing people here. Never, ever have I felt judged by anybody here. You, uh, you, you told me that there, were, there was a, like a one-week span where you wound up in the hospital twice, right? Towards, towards the end of my using, I, um, I spent time in a, in a detox place. I got out of there. I'm like, okay, you know, I got to change my life this time. I got to do it. Well, I ended up using, I ended up getting bad drugs, and I overdosed. I ended up in the hospital for three days. Got out of the hospital, and I'm like, you know, I, I knew I had to make a change. But the addiction had outweighed me wanting to, wanting to change. So... I got out of the hospital, managed to stay clean for about three or four days, ran into somebody I shouldn't have, and overdosed again. I was in the same hospital within maybe eight, nine days, the same hospital with the same doctors, you know, and they, they just looked at me and, you know, they're like, you have to do something because at that point they could have had me committed to somewhere because I was an endangerment to myself. You know, so... But they were just basically telling you, you're going to kill yourself, you're going to die. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what happened after that second time in the hospital? So after, that, after the second time, I got out and I went back to the place I was living at. You know, I stayed there for like a day or two trying to collect my thoughts. I was still, yeah, I was very, very, very dope sick, which, I mean, if you've ever had COVID, being dope sick is like times 100 having COVID. Dope sick means like withdrawal, withdrawals, basically, yes. right? Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, so I made a decision. I was going to found another detox program that would take me. I still had money in my pocket. And I left the place I was at, just left everything behind. I was sitting on the bus stop. And I had my head down in my lap. And I heard, I don't know, <laughs> I was withdrawing pretty bad at this point. And I, something said to me, you know what you have to do. And I looked up and there was nobody there. And I was just like, okay, you know, that was a wake up call. That was God telling me, you gotta do something. Yeah. Otherwise you're not gonna be, you know, you're not yeah. gonna make it. Yeah. And I mean, I've lost, I mean, you're still oh, God. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, in the five years I've been clean and sober, um, I've lost, more friends than I can count on my fingers and toes because they went back to addiction. Yeah, yeah. So when we read scripture wrestle like this, saying in him was light and that light was the life of all mankind and that light has come and the darkness has not overcome it, what is this, 
when we read through scriptures like this, Russ, I didn't warn Russ I was going to ask him this, <laughs> but what, is, what does this make you think of? You know, every sermon that you preach is something that I take in and pertain it to my life, mm-hmm. you know, and I lived many, many years in darkness, you know, I shied away from family, friends, I didn't see my family for a number of years, you know, but I have come to the light, and, you know, I fight every day. That's it. Every day I fight to stay clean and sober. You know, I have to remind myself daily. Yeah. You know, I could walk out the door, there could be somebody standing there, and, you know, hand you, I have to be pre- 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 no, prepared for that every day of my life, yeah. for the rest of my life. I mean, it's, addiction isn't something that goes away overnight. Yeah. You know, it's something I got to live with for the rest of my life. Yeah. But every day, you choose light. I do. Over your own darkness. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I, you know, I can never say I will never use again, but yeah. today, I'm clean and sober, you know, over five years. A little over five years. Thank you. <laughs> Friends, this is what the gospel looks like. I have a poem that I read to myself every day. And you you can pertain this to anything in your life. It's a short poem. Okay, chapter... Lost it. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am hopeless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it as there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. That's that's where I am today. Amen. (laughs) So there's some of you sitting here today who share Russell's story, and there's some of us sitting here today who that story seems wild and outrageous. And I want to tell you, for those of us who that story just seems something other than the life we've lived, there's that darkness, your own personal darkness, it's right there just as much as it is for Russell. Here's the hard part. For those of us who don't identify with that, It's a lot harder to name our own personal darkness for some of us, isn't it? But each one of us has a choice to make every single day, just like Russell does, every single day. Am I going to choose the light of Christ today? Am I going to choose the light of Christ in this moment? And we get to celebrate stories like Russell, where just this last Tuesday, he celebrated five years of sobriety. So here's something beautiful that this is what the church is and does. Five, six, seven years ago, Russell was on these streets looking for his next fix. And this morning, 
He's going to serve you communion. So, would you pray for friends who might be struggling with the same things that you've been struggling with, Russell? Would you I, be okay with that? I have a prayer that I also say every day to myself, too, and I will share that. Oh, blessed Lord, you minister to all who came to you. Look with compassion upon all, those, all who through addiction have lost their health and freedom. Restore them the assurance of your unfailing mercy. Remove from them the fears that beset them. Strengthen them in the work of their recovery and to those who care for them. Give patient understanding and persevering love. Amen. Amen. Let me pray before we end our time with taking the Lord's coming to the Lord's table together. Father, I'm so grateful for Russell. I remember seeing Russell's name pop up every day when we would do our Zoom online COVID gatherings. He was the first to show up then, just like he is the first to show up every Sunday sitting in the same seat. And I'm so grateful for his story. I'm so grateful, Jesus, that you invaded his darkness. And I'm grateful that, Holy Spirit, you've been helping Russell say yes to your light every single morning, every single moment for the last five years. And we bless him with the strength to say, say yes to your light for the next five years and then five years after that. And for those of us without this dramatic story, would you, Holy Spirit, would you do us the favor of revealing our own personal darkness to ourselves? Not because it's easy, not because we like being confronted with our brokenness, but because without being confronted by our brokenness, we can't make the choose to step into your light, Jesus. And so we come to this table today as, as one body, one church, all of us broken, all of us in need of life, all of us being invited out of our own darkness and into light. And we take this bread in this cup this morning just to say, yes, I want you, Jesus. I want you to fill my body. I want you to fill my soul and my spirit and give me life. And so we do what churches around the world are doing right now and we come to the table for life, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You can come up the middle aisle and go down the side aisle. Russell will be here. If there's a big, huge line over by Russell's side, it's not going to hurt my feelings, but I'll be over here and you can go down the side aisles.